What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smarter, more inspired, or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Oh, why, hello there. Thank you for joining me again for another Emulsion podcast interview. My guest today is Max Shapiro. Max is the owner and chef of Oxalis, which is an invite-only dining experience with a wait list over 10,000 guests long. What to expect out of this episode, we chat through guest-driven versus chef-driven dining concepts, which I think was really interesting to get his thoughts on, competition, and if it even matters, should you even consider it, sourcing high-quality and often rare product regardless of if you're a restaurant chef or not, because Max does not work in a traditional restaurant, purchasing and enjoying upper-echelon wines, plus Max gives me his layover 101 guide to LA because he's got his uh, he's deeper than elbow deep in the food scene in LA which I certainly appreciated. If you enjoy this interview I certainly recommend that you queue up episode 14 that is going way back and it's my conversation with Andre Bloomberg Nigod who is absolutely overdue for his second appearance on this podcast but he's also someone whose opinion on food and dining out I highly highly respect. He's not afraid to speak his mind so consider that up next in your queue. If at any point you'd like to pause and check out Max or our Solace online or any of the specific kind of linkable things that we discussed, please do check out the show notes, of course, linked down below or always available on justincona.com slash media. As per usual, thanks so much for being with me. Here we go. All right. Um, well, I was hoping that we would start with this long-winded post that you shared, and uh, apologies mm. if that's a little bit too heavy, but I think that there's really something <laughs> funny and valuable in putting out a piece of content that you can point people to if they just kind of send you an, an off-branded dm or something mm -hmm. like that you don't mm -hmm. have to give the full context but just to kind of explain to people like what prompted you to make that post i know that's certainly what like caused me to reach out and want to talk to you in this kind of format okay yeah um so just that that overall sense of you not having <laughs> traditional training but also cooking the food that you do and going into the experiences that you have um what 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 prompted that post in general? So I was on the Air Jordan podcast with Jordan Oaken, and it was the asshole episode. Um, and I give a lot of opinions, and I always have. So people that don't know me or haven't been following me or just followed me three weeks ago are like, who the fuck are you? Why do you have an opinion? Why do you know more than I do? Why do you know more than anybody on Yelp? I'm like, so I didn't give a super long-winded post as to all, all the things I've done. But since I was 10 years old, all I've ever really done uh, in a creative platform is food. And the greatest times I've ever had are searching out food and being at a table with friends and stuff. So it's not like I'm the casual eater that goes like, hey, this place is great. They have truffle fries. I'm not that guy. Right. It's a lot deeper than that. And I so, think, well, another point that you covered in that podcast interview that I thought was really interesting was this idea that 
a lot of the critics that are publishing regularly aren't opinionated enough. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. So I just think that, and a lot of critics I think don't know enough. Um, especially here, uh, we hire people from other States that don't know the city and you'll have a critic go into a restaurant and they'll review the food. And of course they'll throw out the word umami because what other word is there sure. in this, in this world? Sure. Um, and they won't review service. They won't review a wine list. And for me, those are other elements to a restaurant. And I think that a lot of critics just are one-sided. They don't, they don't get the whole picture. Sure. I was going to kind of, kind of riff on that with you just in general, because, um, I will shoot like full videos and just share my thoughts on the food, uh, from restaurant meals that, you know, I eat at to one, inspire me Two, it's just like that stuff in, in the same way that you just enjoy it from a hedonic pleasure kind of, kind of sense of getting to know different ideas about food and different people's perspective on how they, um, interpret writing a tasting menu. Um, mm-hmm. I guess what else does it for you in sharing? Cause you do a lot of your sharing through like Instagram stories, right? Yeah, mostly the, the post it's gotten so crazy these days where posting something has to be so curated. And before <laughs> it was just like, I'm sitting and you take a picture of yourself sitting. It, that, that doesn't exist anymore. People, people hate that. You'll get a bunch of unfollows when you do that. But yeah, through the stories I share what I'm up to and what I'm doing. Yeah. And I think, there was a there was a great and it's so funny that I that I read this on Twitter today. But the quote the quote was the only people who can be fully honest at all times are the financially free plus anonymous. Does that does that resonate at all or do, do, do you like? I mean, uh, I'm neither, I guess. <laughs> but but you still you're you're still so um, unabashedly, like you said, honest in a way that I think is, is very productive and refreshing for people who are just used to, um, over editorialized, just like, um, coming from a place of trying to appeal to, to vanilla or just, and it's frustrating, right? Because, and I, 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 what I'm saying is I think that there's, there's room for it, but you, you have done it in a way that's not like formalized in the way that you're trying to send a bunch of people to your blog or whatever. Sure. Um, yeah, and and I, I I just really admire it, and I, I want to kind of applaud you for doing it because I appreciate that. There there needs to be more of it, man. Like, it's a huge problem. You look to these people for advice on where to go, but you know they have these expense accounts. Maybe they're not that knowledgeable. Then you go. I mean, and let's we're talking locally. Let's talk about all over the world. You know, then you go to these places, and they suck. And you're like, wow, I just spent all this money because some asshole said it was amazing. Totally. I can distinctly remember it was a trip up into the mountains of Norway that my chef took me on with a couple people who were on. I don't remember if it's um, – I'm almost positive it was World's 50 Best. And just to hear – and they, they had like had voting – and then they got it. They were out for one of the years, and just to hear about the corruption is just like so disheartening because it doesn't get talked about um, enough. But then at the same time, it's just, I guess, where do you draw? Where do you draw the line between you getting your recommendations for when you get to a new city and you want to you want to go out to eat somewhere? Has that already been kind of decided, or you link up with homies in the in the place, or? 
it's gotten to a point where I don't really look to anything that's uh, in a blog or on an editorial platform. I just talk to friends that have been there. Sure. And sometimes I'll take a risk and just go somewhere. Um, but it's, it's hard for me to look to places for where to go because I can't trust anybody. Been burned too many times. Yeah. (laughs) Like big time. When you, when you go out a a question that I, that I think certainly influences and experiences, and you mentioned this at the start of the interview is do you, do you like to dine alone? Do you, do you like to dine with either a partner or a group? Does it change when it's a four top versus a two top in your mind? I'll tell you the big difference. Um, for me, if you eat alone, you pay attention to every detail so much. Correct. And I think that's even more important when it's a tasting menu type of restaurant. Mm-hmm. When you go to restaurants and they fire like 10 dishes at once and throw them on the table, things get cold, you're chatting with your buddies, you're just putting stuff on your plate and rifling it in your mouth. You don't know what you're eating at that point. It's sustenance and you're hanging out. Interesting. But when you when you eat alone, you pay attention to so many details in the food, uh, in the service, all these things. And, and if you're with someone else, one other person, um, and they're also into it, then it's kind of the same thing. If you're in a group, it's a little harder to pay attention. You're talking about things and you're just putting food in your mouth. It's fascinating to see also how your interaction with the staff changes too, because when you're, even if, even if there's one other person at that table, there's this dynamic where they, they want to make sure that they aren't interrupting a conversation, at least in like a formalized service kind of setting. Mm -hmm. And the, the switch that happens when you're dining alone and then that person literally just gets to engage with you or literally ask your candid feedback of like, how was that last bite? You know, um, totally changes it. And and I think that's fascinating. That's a good point to bring up. It's, yeah. it's almost like you're eating with the staff. Correct. Like they're hanging out with you and talking to you. They're like, so are you in town for something? Blah, blah, blah. And you're, you're kind of having a conversation with them. It, it's, it's a cool dynamic when you eat alone. Is that almost always the, the place that you'd like to experience a new re- – like somewhere that you've never been before um, from and then you would prefer to kind of invite people back or, or you're just kind of – it depends on the timing. It's a mixed bag. Yeah, I mean, yeah. usually, usually, especially if I'm traveling, I'm probably with somebody, a friend or whatever. And, sure. and so that's not possible, but I have been fortunate enough to have some of my greatest meals by myself. Totally. Is that kind of what you, and I want to get into just Oxalis in general and kind of like your, like mm-hmm. the, the work that you do cooking wise. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you push for people to kind of book with, with Oxalis or you try to, you know, just accommodate whatever their requests, their request happens to be. Do you have a lot of single diners? I have a lot of single diners. I don't push it, but people do ask, they go, Hey, is it going to be weird? I go, no, I know everybody that's going to be at the table. I chose everybody that's eating. I, I vet them. I go through their social media. Like this is going to be a super cool group and you're going to have a good time. And I remember once I had um, a dinner, and strangely enough, it was six women. All of them were by themselves. And I mean, the last time I heard from them was three years ago. But for, and this happened seven years ago, they have had a standing Monday night dinner, all six of them, for like seven wow. years. Wow. Yeah. All started. That, that was the genesis of that. That's, that's yeah. wild. That's wild. So, 
this concept th- this concept I was really eager to chat through with you in relation to Oxalis just in general and, and the way that you've kind of positioned yourself in cooking slash real estate, especially on the luxury side of real estate, is Peter Thiel has this great mental model around competition where he basically says to just completely avoid it. And when I say the word competition, what I guess comes to mind for you and how have you been navigating uh, kind of – because you can't find Oxalis in a guide or you, you, do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, as far as competition goes, I don't really look at it that way. I've been lucky enough to be uh, published in certain articles and I've been on a couple TV shows. Um, and then I'm just surprised at how many people sign up for the email list. Right. Which is, if I'm not mistaken, at like 10,000 strong. Yeah, it's, it's a little over 10,000 people. And when did that list start, just so people have a... That list started in 2012. Sure. And I guess the, the point I'm trying to make for people to just think about, just listeners to take away from this, is this idea of cooking or just whatever work that you do being focused around this kind of better than the other guy in town mentality just kind of completely gets stripped away when the kind of model that you're just generating in general is just so far removed from that. And I can only imagine Mm -hmm. that that gives you just massive amounts of of freedom and not playing these silly games that other people can get caught up with and really structure their career around. You know what I mean? Like these people who are just, they'll spend 25 years trying to reach a, a good write-up or a certain number of stars. Um, yeah. And it's just like when you operate like that, I can only imagine that helps a lot. Yeah, it is. You know, I don't deal with dietary restrictions. I'm cooking for 12 people over the course of a night. And if you want me to change a dish, I'm sorry, you can't come. And that's the freedom and control that I have doing what I do. If you have a restaurant, you got to accommodate people. Um, because it's you're a restaurant, right? I and, choose who eats. Yep, yep. Is there a point when you when you flipped that where you were going from just you know most recently or or longest standing s- signed up on the wait list to I'm going to actually curate every single guest at this dinner? Um, it's always been curating. Um, there's nothing worse than showing up to a dinner that people, the first people to buy tickets show up to. Right. And everybody at the table is so boring. Their conversation sucks. It's bumming us out. It's bumming the other people at the table out. You want to curate a table that's going to have a great time. That's laughing from their belly and enjoying everything. Do you, so I, a big proponent that you push for a lot from what I've read, and again, you can correct any of these kind of facts and figures if, if I'm misquoting, but you cook almost everything, right? Like you're, you're doing all of the prep and the execution. From a rest of the team perspective at a 12-person um, a Oxalis experience, what does that look like? So the cooking is 100% me. The sourcing, yeah. everything prep. The other people involved are wine. So a sommelier that pairs the food and the wine and also helps with service. We have another person front of house just helping out and then a dishwasher and that's it. And those are all taking place at real estate listings that you have on the market, correct? No, no, never, never. Only at my house, Interesting. only at my house, at my dining room. Interesting. 
because I guess that's where I had it a little bit skewed in my mind where I, I thought that it was this interesting way to not only network for you in this other work that you do, but then also kind of, I mean, I've had a, a, a ton of great success and requests to kind of like um, show off and make fill a space not just with food but with interesting people and I think that that like do you see any value in that or or you just enjoy the control of having it be in your in your place in theory that's a great idea but unfortunately at these listings a lot of people either live in their homes their kitchens are like oh but my kitchen's huge your kitchen being huge does not help me cook dinner by the way it actually might be problematic because I have to move around too much it's not an efficiently built out kitchen. It just looks nice. You don't have all the plates. You don't have all the stemware. You don't have the equipment. Right. I'd have to schlep everything to a house. It just, it's just so much easier for me to just cook in a home that I designed in a kitchen that I designed. When, when did that process start of designing the kitchen for you? Like how long has this build out gone or constructing of this space for you? I've lived in the same place for 13 years. So 13 years ago is when I I put it all together. Yeah. And um, I was cooking for people, but I was never charging or having strangers over. So it was always kind of the same six people at once. Um, And I'm just happy with the way everything's laid out. Right. The to go back to the 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 team that you work with, is Mm -hmm. it and you don't have to name names or anything, but I, I guess for people who are solo chefs who want to do projects like this is there a place that you recommend that they start whether it's you know like i can probably name three or four people just in the seattle area from from just wine experiences i've either had or friends of mine that you know if it happens to be their day off on a day when i'm doing a dinner in in this kind of fashion that i would call but for someone who is kind of wanting to get into hosting things like this or cooking in this very you know, targeted, intimate fashion, where, where, where should people start to build that out? Your friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have friends that are in the industry, um, that really want to be a part of it. So you find someone that really knows their wine and, and service. And you're like, Hey, do you want to help out? Um, so I'm fortunate enough in, in that regard, when this all started, um, I, my friends that were not in the industry, the friend that I had do the wine, uh, was just really big into wine and pairing food and wine and went out to a lot of restaurants and then ended up after doing this with me getting into the wine industry. Fascinating. Yeah. So just start with your friends. Sure. I, the, do do you know of this gentleman named Stephen Harris? No, he's out in, um, Kent in the UK. He owns a restaurant called the sportsman. I've heard that. Does that say, does that ring any bells? Yeah, yeah. He, his story is fascinating, and and in light of not just the the this new kind of path of being able to do pop ups just in general from from basically starting from zero. I'm fascinated by his story because there's something along the lines of he used he was a history teacher until he was about 50 years old. And his process of learning about food was basically going to eat at all the three stars in Paris and reading on food and cooking. <laughs> and then he just started, you know, cooking slowly, slowly. And then he, you know, got a space and eventually ended up with a Michelin star, which I think is it totally dispels this idea of in order to learn about food properly, you need to, you know, take the culinary school example 
out of it because I think that that's a little bit gone and over with. But even just the idea of you have to go work either at a distinct number of places um, for, you know, that five to 10 year time period and then you're ready. I think that that what you embody so well is this idea of like, I'm going to just constantly learn about food through through eating and, and and I'd be curious to hear if if any if you have any advice for someone who is wanting to take that path because I don't I don't necessarily think it's for everyone but if there's even you know one person listening to this who is just kind of on the fence thinking oh I have to go to the back door and and you know knock and start being a line cook in order to do this um, I think you're a testament that that's not necessarily true yeah personally I think that the best way to learn is to go out and eat. Is that expensive? It sure is. Um, but if you can do it, um, that's the best way you can learn about what you like. When you go to culinary school, there's a curriculum. Well, not that I even know. It's what I've, <laughs> right. I I've can't confirm. Up. There is a curriculum. <laughs> okay. There's a curriculum. You get. You don't get to choose what you, you're learning and, and what you like. When you go out to eat, you, you decide what you like and, and what you want to make. So then you ask questions and you practice. I don't know how to be a line cook. So that's something that's going to need some actual experience. I I don't know how to perform in a brigade style kitchen because I don't operate one because I'm the only person cooking. Right. Um, So you'll have to eventually get there to learn how to, you know, teach a staff and, uh, you know, how how to cook in your, in your kitchen. But the path to learning what you want to cook and, and how you want to cook is by going out and eating. Sure. How soon after kind of really starting to have some nice meals, did you start to, like you said, practice like on your own, making these dishes for yourself or trying to recreate what you just ate? I would say that didn't really happen in a legitimate way until I was probably 19. Got it. And I asked that because I think that there's a, and I can't say exactly when it is, but there certainly for me was, was time because I grew up like in 1500 person town in in Wisconsin where chicken wings and beer and pizza was like the end all be all of gastronomy. And so Mm -hmm. I I, I went straight from graduating high school to New York, uh, upstate New York to, to go to culinary school. And every weekend I would go down to Manhattan to like stage at different places and have meals as, as often as I could. And I can distinctly remember there was a switch that happened when I got enough experience with the hands-on and the techniques and the, the, the learnings where I could like the, the, the value I could extract from a tasting menu hockey sticks because I actually could understand the techniques that were being deployed on the plate as opposed to there was like a moment before that where it was just like I would get a dish and something would be executed in a way where I just for the life of me couldn't describe to you how how it how, how it was constructed or plated or, or or what have you do you think are you in agreement that 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 there's a, a moment that people should get a technique foundation and then really hammer home the going out to eat position or, or you can just continue yeah. to learn. No, I think, I think it's important to learn the basics. Like if you don't know how to brunoise, right. You're going to have a problem. Um, you know, get your knife cuts down, learn mother sauces, stuff like that. Just learn basics. Cause 
all all this stuff is just riffs on things like that. Right. You know? Right. Um, so yeah, you need, you need to have like a, a foundation in place, which I didn't have technically. Right. But I got, but I got there, but I think it's really important to have that foundation and then do whatever you want. What, what were some either resources or early fuck ups that you just had to go through that just, you know, really, uh, made an impact? Was it, was it books, old Jacques Pepin videos? Like what, 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 what did you reach for? Yeah, I think I'm 36 years old. People of my age grew up watching, you know, Emerald, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, all that stuff on TV. And, and that's, and that British guy that never seemed to cook, he would just make jokes the whole time. What's <laughs> right. his, I forgot his I, name. I don't remember. Um, but, uh, yeah, you kind of start there and, and you get interested and then you go in the pantry, start messing around, cut your fingers a couple times. Um, cause your dad has the most horribly dull knife of all time. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's but, where it all starts really. There's a lot of kitchen and, you know, knife related specifically gearheads li- listening. And so I would, I'd be keen to hear if you have like a memorable knife that you either have in your kit now that you're still using or kind of like one of your first knife purchases that you made. So first knife knife purchase was probably like, uh, like a Wustoff or what is totally. it? Was it Wusa? Yeah. Or um, Hank- Hankel's probably one, yeah, of, those, Hankel's. one of those bullshit Someone ones. Someone <laughs> sent me though. There's a place downtown, uh, here in LA called Anzen Hardware. Okay. Um, and a Japanese guy owns it. He must be like 340 years old. <laughs> um, I was sent there when I was probably like 21 years old and I walk in and you know, he looked at me and he's like, are you a chef? And I was like, no, but I cook a lot. And he goes, just say you're a chef. Cause I'll give you 20% off. I was Amazing. Like, yes, I'm a chef. And I, I still use and have the knife that he made me get just a, a normal eight inch chef's knife. Interesting. That, and I've bought a million knives since then. And that's the one I still use. Well, I was going to ask, um, as part of the kind of rapid fire questions towards the end, but I might as well do it now. If there's, if, if knives in particular would check this box, but the question was going to be, is there anything that doesn't ever make it on your Instagram that, you know, if you had to tell someone hush hush that you're really interested in something else, what would that be? As far as equipment? Either equipment or, I mean, it can be like if you're a, a massive sneakerhead or it seems like plant, plants might be some something like that or art. I mean, I like ter- – there's nothing that I'm that into. I mean, I like terrariums. Um, I uh, – everybody knows I collect wine. Right. Um, if you follow me on Instagram. Exactly. Um, and I make a lot of cocktails. Everything's very food and alcohol-based, which – my doctor has told me is not the best. <laughs> um, but no, I'm, I'm big into aesthetics. So I do have art. Um, I do have nice furnishings, nice things. It's all about making people feel comfortable. Um, in the fact that you don't live like a slob right. and everything's clean. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there's nothing that's secretive that I'm really into that somebody wouldn't know. Sure. That's interesting. Hmm. Where do I go from? There's a, there, Hmm. Let's talk about a few meals meals for a second because I, I, I think you and I both thought the fish at Austria Francescana was overcooked. And you broke down that experience into food, wine pairing, atmosphere, 
and then of course the the choice words for the world's 50 best voters so do you still view restaurant experiences through those kind of four lenses and and you know that that fourth one being like expectation i guess would be that last kind of lens yeah and so in that little review i did i i held back i didn't I didn't, I was super drunk by the way, and <laughs> I didn't want to be super wordy. Um, but yeah, I look at it. I mean, service, food, ambiance, wine, and also when it's applicable expectation. Right. There's certain people that say they have like the, the, the bathroom cleanliness test, there's certain people who have like the server warmth test. And what was the other one that I wrote down? Uh, the wobbly table test. Like certain people have certain things they, they like kind of nitpick as, as a first impression thing at a restaurant. Do you have anything like that that stands out? Um, I want to – a big thing for me is how long it takes for a server to come to your table and right. either drop a menu or ask if you want water. Um, I've been to places where I've waited 20 minutes. I'm like, what is going on right now? Sure, sure. It's very frustrating. Let's talk about a place that I think caused mindfuck moments for both of us after our separate mm-hmm. experiences, and that was Echibari. Just, mm-hmm. just ridiculous. What what makes Echibari so good? So there are so many things that make Echibari so good, which I'm sure you can agree with. Yeah. Uh, it's first of all, it's the mystery of it. You're like, what is this place? Where is this place? It's a little over an hour outside of San Sebastian, and. It's just in the middle of nowhere. It's a tiny little village. And this guy has been – it's been open for 28 years and the chef Victor is there every day and he he cooks everything over fire and he designed a grill. And so you're thinking like, OK, so what is it about this place? A lot of people cook over fire. Then you start eating and you go, that was the best prawn I've ever had in my life. That was the best anchovy I've ever had in my life, so on and so forth he's using the best ever ingredients and cooking them in an ancient method and presenting them like really beautifully in like a storybook dining room from a building that's like hundreds of years old. And, and then just like the older women that are serving you who are probably, I mean, his wife or somebody's wife, um, it all just adds up to be for me probably the best restaurant on the planet because it's real food. Right. There's there's no gimmick, there's no over manipulation, there's no magic tricks like 11 Madison Park. Right. It's it's legit food. He just grills a prawn <laughs> and puts it on a plate and you're like why is this the best prawn I've ever had? Yep. How did you get there? Did you just rent a car and make your way out there? Uh hired a, at the hotel I was staying at. Um, you can hire a driver nice. to, to take you there and they wait and take you back home. I took a bus, man. And I was like, Oh the really? Last, yeah. I was like the last person on this bus. The bus driver got lost. Cause they were like, this isn't really a stop that you're asking me to go to, but like, oh, boy. you're the last person on the bus. I'll, I'll take you to where you need to go. <laughs> and just like, wow. we, we got to the end of a dead end road and had to like flip the bus, which was like really hard with that road that we were on. Like we were almost going to like go into the field. Um, mm. But yeah, just fat. That, that was another meal where I'm, I'm super happy that I ate alone during that meal. The first time I was there, I was alone also. Yeah. So that was super impactful. 
we're both people who have had our fair share of experiences. We've cooked enough food ourselves, and yet we gush over this concept that in writing it down on paper seems so simple. Why is it so hard either for people to tend to overcomplicate things or just us to us to as you know creatives of our own to achieve that level of kind of like holy shit you know it's i think it's hard because i think a lot of people's egos get in the way yeah um and i think that the standard diner if they were to go to a place that was really expensive and you just put a single prawn on their plate they go well what did you do why am i paying so much you didn't do anything here where's where's the foam where's the crumble where's the this where's the that the average diner doesn't appreciate that like someone like you or i would sure um for me i look at this guy i'm like this guy is mastered making something perfect even better and not messing with it right and that is so hard to do. The balls to literally just grill something and spray it with some mystery concoction while it's grilling, that takes balls and that takes confidence and that takes a, a years and I mean, of practice. Even just talking through that point you made about expectation, right? Like I basically grew up in food reading Bonjwing Lee describe his experiences at Echabari as being completely life-changing. And I came into that experience with these, I would argue, overinflated expectations because it was just like every single person who spoke about eating there was just floored. Yeah. And to have it just like, not just meat, but like, like twist and then also sad. Like, I, I just, I don't know. There was something... There, there's there's so much to be said about him and that restaurant. That's the beauty of it. You can hear someone gush about it all day long, but until you're there experiencing how amazing that place is, you're not really going to know. Right, right. And that's why it ex- exceeds expectations because the reality is something that you can't fathom until you're sitting there. Sure. You have this riff that you go on that I really enjoy, which is kind of guest driven concepts versus chef driven concepts. Can you explain that for, for people who don't, don't know? When a restaurant is built on some chef who picked herbs at Alinea. So now he gets his own restaurant, even though he doesn't know how to cook his own food. Right. It's focused on this person and they can do a dish with 20 components and put fruit, all kinds of fruit and savory dishes this is for him. It's for him to build his brand, to feed his ego, to feed his Instagram, maybe get a TV show. It's not about who's eating there. It's about him saying, look what I can do. Not, what can I give you so you have the best time? You need to make food that someone's going to love eating, not something that is going to get you some kind of viral Instagram dish or get you on a TV show. Sure. And that's the big thing. I like restaurants that are about me, not about their chef. Is there a, and, and I'm, I'm going to push back because I, I, I kind of want to see where this goes. Is there 
is it black and white like that? Is there no. is there potential for um and your answer kind of kind of answers my question, but she <laughs> did no, it's fine. Just just chefs being wanting to have these bigger kind of goals to to build out other I don't know, revenue streams, products that they want to see out in the world or, you know, philanthropic efforts or 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 whatever. I think that in that way in that way of thinking, do you do you see it as chefs should just decide to have seasons of their career and not kind of have one foot in one bucket and one foot in the other? No, I think it's good to diversify and obviously uh, the majority of chefs don't make enough money. And if you could diversify yourself to be able to provide for your family, uh, go ahead. But what I'm speaking of is, is directly food and service related. When, when a chef is, is so into themselves and the shit that they're doing, like I saw, I saw an Instagram post like a couple of weeks ago, this kid did oysters with figs and raw shallots and squash blossoms I wanted to throw up and that was for him. That was for his Instagram. And that wasn't about someone sitting down and eating it going like, wow, this is great. That's where if you are cooking great food and you want to be on a TV show or you want to do a cookbook, whatever, that's great. But if you're sacrificing the guest experience for your own uh, betterment, I'm out. I'm secretly satisfied that I pushed back because that is a much more satisfying answer. All right, <laughs> and good. and uh, just I think that we do see it way too often when it doesn't need to be done of people just deciding that th- there needs to be a second one. Do you know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. and then that completely takes away from either the impact that they can have with the the original place where they because oftentimes too I, I I'm sure we both can point to examples of professionals who started something with the best of intentions. And then by the time investors get involved and a couple of networks reach out and you start to see your P and L, you know what I mean? Develop year over year. Um, these opportunities just kind of look completely different. I mean, the chef I worked for in Norway had an offer to do a restaurant in Dubai with like a hundred thousand dollar licensing deal just to use his name in the restaurant. And it's just like, when you're looking at numbers like that compared to other things, it's just like you want to do it in a way that serves the original kind of like outpost, right. In, in a, in a Mm -hmm. positive way. But then like none of us can be in more than one place at once. So then something's got to give, you know? Yeah. That's, that's also super difficult. You, you have pride in your name and what you've created. And if it's just a licensing deal and you have no control, really, um, he didn't take it by the way in, 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 okay. in, in smartly. And I'm glad All that right. he didn't, yeah. but you know, yeah, I mean, that's another thing it's, and I always think about Wolfgang Puck in this regard where, I mean, the guy's got a billion restaurants, <laughs> but here in LA pre COVID, if you're in one of his restaurants, there's a very good chance he'll be walking around the dining room. Sure. Um, he's not, he's not on the line. He's not cooking anything. He's, he hasn't done that in a long time, but still in the restaurants right he's still he's still standing at the pass looking at food going out making sure everything's okay and and so many people when they open their second restaurant that first restaurant goes to shit Mm. how is it that this guy can have six million restaurants and maintain consistency sure and i i I wanted to 
make sure that we covered all of these things because I, I don't think that it gets applauded enough. And I'm so happy that you kind of use the the words that you kind of preach out there to bring attention to these things and applaud them when they're being done well. Because if it just gets fault, if, if the only exciting news from a chef is that they're opening a new place, mm-hmm. that just that, that's just a recipe for disaster. Pardon the pun. In speaking about just running a business in general, I mean, I guess, do you think about Oxalis in, in that way? Do you, is, is it kind of a selfish passion project where you don't think about it as a business? Because I would taint it or I guess before I ask. <laughs> it's so far from being a business. It's not even funny. <laughs> I, I lose thousands of dollars. I mean, it, it can't, I can't even. It's a joke. I start laughing when people are like, oh, your business. I'm like. I sell residential real estate. I lose thousands of dollars sure. cooking. Sure. So a lot of that comes from just your relentless devotion to trying to find the best product to cook with and serve people, right? That's part of it. It's yeah. also I, I charge less. Yeah. It's a less less pri- less pricey seat. How when you're when you're thinking about sourcing products is it something you've just built up over the over the years through 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 a network, or or if you want to have a new ingredient come into a menu, how do you go about sourcing? Because I think that's another thing that a lot of first time cook, cooking on their own people struggle with. Yeah, when it started, it was me going to like a Japanese market or a Korean market that had live fish and tanks and things like that. You're like, this is so cool, I can get live abalone, right? And then you mess around with abalone. Then it turned into, you know, I knew a lot of chef friends. I would eat it. For instance, there's a restaurant here called Hayato, and he grilled notoguro and served it with like salt. And that's it. And I ate that piece of fish. I was like, holy, this is like maybe one of the best pieces of fish I've ever had in my life. Where'd you get it? And he goes, oh, my friend Yuto, it's Sakasu. So then he gives me that guy's information and now I buy fish from that guy. I get the right. best Japanese sardines, the best sardines I've ever had from Japan and all this other stuff. So it, it went from me just going to ethnic markets that have live fish or other products that you know you can't just find at a, a normal supermarket or a farmer's market. Um, and then it turned into relationships setting me up with these uh, wholesalers. Um, to where I could get the same Notoguro that Brandon and Hayato got. So I'm essentially using the same product that a guy at arguably one of LA's best restaurants is also using. Right. And then just new, new products in general. Is it, I'm, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of, um, just an example of something that you would experience where you're like, I really want to use that. There's obviously retail options you can use, but will will you, it, it does that become cost prohibitive in a way where you would just forego using it or you would, and, and this is trying to get very tactical for people of like, mm-hmm. Oh, well, if you see that someone is carrying bliss maple syrup, right. And you want mm-hmm. to use that in a tasting menu as opposed to buying retail, there are these backdoor options where you can get it. Yeah, I, I, I'm so stupid. I buy everything. <laughs> um, and as far as new ingredients go, 
I, when I started cooking and started doing meals for strangers, it was a lot about shock value and things you've never had before. And as I've gotten older and, and kind of learned what I like to eat and cook, I like things that people are familiar with. Cause I think it's more impactful if I give you a carrot, that's the best carrot you've ever had because everyone's had a carrot. Sure. Then, then some crazy creature or ingredient you've never seen in your life. So you have no baseline for that. You don't know what that tastes like. Right. But a carrot, you know what a carrot tastes like. Totally. That makes sense. I wanted to talk big picture with Oxalis in general. And I, I, I think that the, the answer you gave of it just not being a business that, that you voice in that way answers it, but is in an individual Oxalis night, is there kind of metrics that you look for to call it a win at the end of the day? People having a good time. That's the only metric because I'm losing money no matter what. Right. So that's the only metric. You've brought up raising prices though. Is that something you're still interested in doing or just trying to get it closer to breaking even? I'm raising prices to a point where I'm still losing the same amount, but I'm using more expensive product. Like now that I met the guy that brings all the fish in from Japan, I mean, no to girls, like $74 a pound for this fish. Um, and sometimes even more depending on the season. So for me, I think that if I charge people a thousand bucks a person, I would sell out. Mm -hmm. I only have to serve 12 people out of 10,000 people. And even those people that aren't even on the list, I'll, I'll do something on Instagram and someone will throw in a request without even being on the list. Sure. I would get that filled, but then I'm excluding a lot of people and I might be excluding the people that would be the most fun to have at dinner. Um, so it's a balance of having the most fun table or the table with the most money. Right. I think that there's this fascinating, um, it's almost similar to how Amazon will do some things where they will – I guess Costco is another example, right, where like their whole business model is engineered around like, well, we have this membership that basically brings in enough to cover our expenses and then everything we do is at, at cost or even sometimes at a loss, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's this you, – you do it with real estate. I do it with like event production and just media projects that I have going where mm-hmm. – you aren't necessarily reliant on the menu to make the profit. And I think that there's something fascinating there where you can actually go from being more guest focused in your experiences. Exactly. It's for me, it's a fuck it mentality. I'm going to give these people the best and it's, and it's not about money. I'm going to lose. I already know that going in, but that goes back to that point about competition, right? Because you're not trying to compete on price. You know, you're not trying to have someone be shopping around for dinner and have to choose between you and, I don't know, insert other restaurant. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And people have said they know the price. I published the price. But they go, oh, do you have a menu? I go, I don't know the menu yet, but I'll send them a previous menu. So they have an idea of what's going on. Um, And uh, I I lost my train of thought. No, it's it's fine. (laughs) Chef Connor 13 on Twitter asked a thing that was in, in vain of this, which is if we both would recommend the business models that we've created, 
and I'd be curious to hear your answer because I don't necessarily think that it's for it's for everyone. And I think that juggling these two sets of skills is like, I mean, it's a polymath thing, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at it from a cooking perspective, if you want to end up having a restaurant and being a chef, which, which I don't want to end up being a chef in a restaurant. Do I want to own a restaurant one day? Sure. But I don't want to be the chef of that restaurant. And the restaurant won't be tasting menu, won't be super fine dining, high end, because if I'm going to get into this business, I want to make money. But if you do what I've done and you cook less courses and you don't blow crazy money on ingredients and you don't give insane wine to people, you just keep it pretty level and you pay attention to cost, you could make some money. And if you do it really often, you could get people in the doors that would be willing to invest in you. Sure. For me, it was, you know, people with money like fine dining and like going out spending money on food. Maybe I'll get a client that will buy or sell their house with me. Uh, so that's where I could potentially profit from an oxalis. As far as charging for food and making money, it's never happened and it never will happen. But right. that could easily be changed. I could change that so easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just – I applaud it, man. Like I I, I think I, I found your page through the Explorer tab of Instagram one day and then I just saw your bio of I, – I, I saw the words real estate and I was just like nailed it. Like so nailed it. And I, I, I think that – we will see a, 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 a research, not a resurgence, but a surge in popularity of people who decide to build an app and decide, you know, like that is their kind of cash cow that pays their bills. Um, mm-hmm. But then they're they're able to execute on these things on the side. I think there's another quote that I heard the other day, which is something along the lines of um, be involved in food and you'll never be short of friends. And I think that there's something there of being able, to, being able to like bring people together and because it's like whatever, whatever you decide to do, re, you know, real estate, podcast, coffee, roasting, whatever, if you can bring those people together, whether it's your customers or investors or on investing, would you invest, would you invest in a restaurant project or kind of back a chef in a way? Not with money. It's, it's, it's crazy. I think, you know what, if I had a crazy amount of funds, if I was super rich, I would because I'd have so much, you know, disposable income. Sure. Right now. No, it's too risky of an investment for me to ever do it. But that is a little bit of an old school. I just want a place where I can say that I'm an owner and bring my friends to mentality, right? Of like the the original investing in a restaurant concept idea, right? A lot of rich people do and, and can do that. Totally. What are your, well, I was going to ask just about the state of the state of COVID in general. We're recording this on August 13th for everyone's kind of time, timestamp reference. I, I mean, I can only imagine you're super happy that there isn't a brick and mortar, uh, Oxalis that you have to worry about, but just your thoughts yeah, on the, the state of things. It's really sad. It is really sad. Um, you know, one of my best friends, Aitor Zabala, had a close saw I saw, me. man. It's heartbreaking. And, you know, he was sending me pictures of these pendants coming from the ceiling that would, like, shield in your head because it's a 10-seat <laughs> counter. And, and he was willing to do anything to, to keep it going. And, 
And, um, you know, it makes me sad because he's one of the good guys and he had something so good going on. He could have got, gotten a, a three Michelin stars mm-hmm. and, and all these other accolades. But now he's left with nothing. Um, so it's bad. And it's and we can only eat outside right now. Or and in one of these like ridiculous bubbles. <laughs> have you seen photos of that? It's just so stupid. Just like, I have not. Just plastic between tables. Just like oh. talk about ruining the experience, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've eaten at places that have uh, partitions. Yeah. Uh, yeah plastic yeah, yeah. partitions. And that's, that's uh-huh. fine. Sure. But no, no, it's, it's depressing. Mm-hmm. As someone that escaped their life for however many hours a night when you go to dinner, now it's, it's hard to find that escape. Um, I have people over for dinner, but it's annoying. I'm cleaning. I'm preparing. I'm worried about hosting. You don't get to escape. Right. Going out is the escape. And it's just really sad right now. A lot of the chefs that I love are going to lose their places or have lost their places. And strangely enough, the ones that I think are trash are doing fine. That's so bizarre. That's so bizarre. And I mean, you don't have to name names on any of those, but I'd just be curious, like, do you think that we'll start to see, I mean, I got really excited when we started to get requests for these like kind of smaller gatherings as, you know, we started to move into phase two and then we had to kind of go backwards and, you know, certain counties in in the state, Mm -hmm. but just, we were really scaling up in, in a time when it you know, started to run away from it a little bit. And I started to get excited about hearing that these smaller gatherings are going to rise to popularity. Do you think that that's going to be something that we see where, you know, these chefs who lost their place end up having, you know, maybe by choice in an excited way, start to host these smaller experiences? A hundred percent. Yes. And you'll see uh, someone that I know has already gotten a small space. Um, and is going to do exactly that. So it's not their home. It's a little test kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's going to be able to do that. And you can kind of avoid these restrictions because dining like this, and this is what Oxalis was always about, it's not a restaurant. You can't make a reservation. It is kind of like I'm having a dinner party and I'm inviting you and you're chipping in for it. It's a loophole. Sure. I'd be curious to hear you speak on what to keep in mind if someone is like, this actually sounds like a really good idea. Like I could totally do this, but I think that people often get it conflated that it has to be a hundred percent ready and buttoned up from the start. And I think what both you or I would suggest is to start from a place of really dialing things in as you kind of progress and, and be, be in control of the, the guests that come to these experiences that you're hosting. Do you mm-hmm. have any other pieces of advice that, you know, someone who is like, Oh, well this has to be like ready for review on the first night that I open. But I think you and I would tactically approach it in a different way. You know, when I started all this in the format that I do it in, you start with friends and family and you, you fuck up on them. And then you get their honest feedback sure. and you, and you start to dial in. Cause here's the thing. You, you're always going to want to get better and do better and, and use nicer stemware at some point, flatware plates. So when you start, you're, you, you could probably think you're killing it right then, but then 
a year later, you go, oh, well, I just saw all these wine glasses. I need to use I need to use Zaltos only now. It's a, always a progression. You're always going to want to do better. So in the beginning, practice on your friends and family. Do the best that you can. Focus on things that are important to you when you go out to eat. I think that if you're giving people what makes you happy, they're they're probably going to be happy too. Uh, fill their water glass when it's it's half full. Don't wait till they're done with their water. Sure. Little things like that. Um, and then the old saying, practice makes perfect. The, the more you do it, the more you'll pick up on the uh, things will get more uh, fine tuned. Uh, it's all a learning experience until the day you die, essentially. There's that other great anecdote that is if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your whatever you ship out, you shipped too late. <laughs> you know? Oh, and yeah. I think that there's something yeah. in that. For sure. Of like, I look at, yeah, I look at my first Oxalis. I was like, wow, <laughs> that is so insane. Yep. Did I really plate something like that? Did yep. I use that bowl? Oh my gosh. Totally. Totally. Where do you get your, your plateware from? Cause it's really, really beautiful. Um, I buy a lot from either MTC kitchen or Corin and, uh, funny enough, like Selfridges in London. Interesting. They get, discounts on like Villaroy and Bosch plates wow. and things like that. I'm always searching like even yeah. CB2 sometimes comes up with a super cool yep. plate and it and those are dirt cheap. Um so it's all over it. And often more durable too like when they're made in that in that way where you're not so paranoid about them completely yeah. going or learn learn kintsugi. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> do, do you know uh who is it Joseph Weaver? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've known Joe for years. Yeah. I have a I have a piece that I I need to do that on and just i have a couple pieces i need to repair and i'd love to is is it have you done it is it something easy that's easy enough to no DIY? it's not very easy i it's tried to do it it was, it was a total mess it's it's <laughs> all i mean technically you're just gluing gold glue with your plate it's not like that it's a it's it's hard i tried to do it failed miserably man yeah, I need to do it on a few things for sure that I'm I'm looking up on my shelf yeah, at. Maybe buy some like crappy plates, break them and practice on those instead of your nice plates. Right, right. I'd love to talk wine for a little bit. When okay. you're when you're seated for a dinner saying maybe you brought some wine, maybe you didn't, and the wine list gets handed to you, can you kind of put yourself in that place and think out loud with us here as to how your process to ordering wine goes? Um, yeah, it, it kind of depends on where you're eating. Let's yeah. say you're going to a tasting menu restaurant and they don't give you a menu, but you've looked on Instagram and you see their menus and you kind of get a grasp of what it is they're serving. So if you, if you know the rules of food and wine pairing to a degree, the majority of the time, I'll probably just be looking for a champagne because champagne's going to go with most of the food that you're going to eat in the beginning of the meal. Um, I remember the first time I went to the restaurant in Meadowood, and you, I didn't know the menu, and I just said, "Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go from Blanc to Blanc champagne into Blanc to Noir champagne into a rosé champagne for the red meat course or whatever." And the psalm was like, "I wish I was sitting with you right now." <laughs> So, so if, if you don't want to go champagne the, the whole time, I mean, start with maybe a Chablis or, 
if if your budget doesn't allow for Chablis, go with like a nice crisp white wine, maybe like a Sancerre or a Puy Fumé, something like that. Um, because the majority of your of your food is probably going to go with crisp mineral white wines or champagne. Sure. And then, um, you know, and then if you're sitting down for Thai food, you're going to drink Riesling with some residual sugar in it yep. because that shit is spicy and you need something to calm that down. Um, rule of thumb, I just order champagne for the sure. most part or bring champagne or buy a red off the list or whatever it may be. Makes a lot of sense. I was also going to touch on that point we made earlier of especially if you're eating out alone where you can have that conversational rapport starting to build with the staff i'd like that's those have resulted in some of the best wine and food experiences that i've had where it's just you you let the person know who like what you like and what you know what to expect menu wise especially if it's going to be a place that's not going to present you with a menu and i think that that there there's a certain element of people who don't have enough experience with it yet where it's intimidating to start that conversation because you're effectively admitting that you need help. And for whatever reason, like that seems like you're, it it seems like a bad thing to people, but I I don't, I don't look at it that way at all. I don't either. I go to therapy, so I definitely (laughs) need help. But, uh, no, I remember I've been to, uh, dinners on my own where I, I look at some, I look at a song and I'll be like, listen, I I don't really want a wine pairing. I don't usually love wine pairings. Um, cause a lot of it is throw in. So why don't you put something together of things that you would want to drink with this meal? And they're like, I got you, sure. you know? Sure. And so the, now you're in their hands and they're going to take care of you because you were cool. You asked them for help. You said, I don't really like the wine pairing and, and they'll, they'll splash you some cool stuff that they'll probably end up drinking the rest of it, uh, at the end of their shift. Totally. And that's it. That even in that question that you that you asked where that it's a fantastic question to ask of like, even like you said, what's a, what's a kind of a, a crisp mineral forward white wine that you're really excited about on the list right now? Do you know what I mean? Because you kind of mm-hmm. you put that trust in them that that mm-hmm. always re- almost always results in a in a good in a good pairing. On the subject of wine pairings, I got a lot of value early on in getting pairings with tasting menus just because it gave me the ability to taste a lot. And taste things like you know you keep the th- you keep three glasses side by side on the mm-hmm. on the table and you kind of like go mm-hmm. back and forth and then you taste it with different bites. In touching on eating early on in one's career, is that also something that you would recommend? Or you there's a better yeah. way? No, I, I'm speaking like as 36 year old me right Correct. now and how I like to eat. But back in the day, I, I would only get wine pairings because. Let's say you get 10 different wines. You're learning about these wines and how they interact with spice or, uh, you know, certain proteins and vegetables and things like that. Like, I can't believe this wine paired with asparagus. Asparagus is a wine killer. Right. Um, You learn those things and then you start to know what you like and can kind of choose your own adventure. Um, But in the beginning, get the wine pairing. Totally. Just dr- drink all the wine possible. That's how you learn about wine too. You yep. drink all the wine yep. and you know what you love and you hate and, and all these things. So I'm speaking as me now, but back in the day, try everything. You try everything. Keeping it in the present, you, I mean, it's not even, I don't, I don't have a large space that I'm comfortable storing wine in where we, where we kind of live right now. And so mm. I am foregoing 
starting to collect wine, but but you will bring wine to meals. Mm-hmm. If when that day comes when I am starting to get ready to buy high quality wines that I either want to age or just buy in in larger like by the case, mm. where where do I start? Like how do how do I start that process? Um, well, you would start with wine refrigerators. Um, but those aren't for super long-term storing your, your corks will dry out. Um, and then your wine will get messed up. Uh, you got to go refrigerated offsite storage and it's not that expensive. Um, but then that's a slippery slope because then you buy a locker and even if it's a small locker, let's say it holds 14 cases, then in your mind, you're like, Oh, I got to get 14 cases of wine to fill this thing up with. And then it's it's just a financial disaster. Right. Um, but if you get some wine refrigerators, um, a little hack is maybe taking a little deli and putting some water in it so there's some humidity in there. Sure. Because uh, those fans are going. Um, you could have wine for a number of years in those refrigerators. But, yeah, just start with the wine fridge. Um, or if you're lucky enough to have a basement that stays cool at all times, um, you can put some racks down there. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways. I, you know, an ex of mine's father turned like his hallway closet into a temperature controlled wine cellar, put a refrigerator unit in it and just use his hallway closet. I've seen that a bunch, um, a bunch of yeah. like under the stair, kind of like exactly <clears throat> yeah. cool corner of the house kind of, kind of set up. Right. The places where you procure the wine, is that like the same mentality that you go with your ingredients where you you make friends with a really great psalm somewhere or you have friends who import or you use winebid.com? Like what, where, where do you go? Winebid.com is a, is a risky one to use because <laughs> you don't know where the wine was stored. Because if you're buying old wine, you know, it could have been in someone's car for a week mm-hmm. in Arizona in, in the middle of August. Sure. That shit's cooked. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the more you drink wine, you're going to meet people in the wine industry. You're going to learn about, you know, sellers being sold off or or auctions. And, and you know, when you – winebig.com doesn't talk about where the wine came from. If you're buying at auction – I mean, these are expensive wines too. If you're buying at auction, they're going to tell you that it's it's only been one owner. It's like buying a used car. It's been mm-hmm. one owner. It's been garaged. Yeah, so yeah. it's been like uh, uh, kept at seller temp and all that stuff. Um, it's just like anything else. You learn what you like and then you continue down that path and you'll meet the people that will show you the way. Um, like for instance, uh, one of my, uh, good friends got a tip, um, on, uh, a seller of someone that passed away Wow! and he went there and their basement was cold. It's cold all year long and found some crazy gems and, and, and bought a seller for pennies of what he would pay elsewhere. Um, and so it's things like that, um, that you kind of run into when you, you're super into wine and, and get into that world. Is anybody, I guess, are you making any decisions on purchasing wine now that's being like produced now that you intend on, you know, enjoying down the line or it's, you, you save yourself the time by seeking out something that's, that's ready. You know, that's a tough, you know all the wine that I like drinking so much current prices on it are crazy. Burgundy and champagne are so expensive now. So I'm going to try and find stuff with age. 
um, that's ready to drink. My patience to wait 10 years to drink a wine, it's not really there yet. Mm -hmm. And I'm not one of those collectors. Like one of my good buddies has, you know, north of 10,000 bottles of wine and puts the whole, he's like, I'll put it away for 15 years. Ridiculous. I don't, I don't have (laughs) that much wine to where I can put something in a corner for 10 years and 20 or 20 years and revisit it. I like things that I can consume within five years. Sure. I can just see myself getting really into it because I'm not a, I'm not a huge stuff guy. I I actually kind of like the idea of wine being something that you can uh, purchase for yourself that is meant to be enjoyed in this way that that is almost temporary. You know, like it, you can't. It, it's actually a disservice to buy a bottle, like a nice bottle of wine, and have it sit on a shelf forever. You know, like mm. there's a there's an end point. You know, um, and so I can totally see myself getting into it when when the the storage conditions are right. And I, I'm glad that you touched on that a little bit. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's a huge thing too. I mean, I've had friends have wine get cooked, even it being in their back seat on the way to something. No. Cause their, their car was, or they parked no. somewhere and their car got, and it cooked the wine. Stresses me out. <laughs> I have one more kind of, kind of larger topic question before we head, head into a few rapid fires end of mm. podcast style. Mm-hmm. Uh, things I've been to LA once last year for I think it was four or five days and I really really enjoyed it it was I, I felt like I barely even scratched the surface understandably but to kind of sneakily squeeze in some recommendations from you and also provide some value to someone who's listening who maybe also has never been or you know doesn't know your side of LA mm-hmm. let's say that there is a 24 to 36 hour layover style stop in LA. How do mm. I, how do I get the most, eat the most, not get sucked up into an overhyped kind of lackluster trip of LA? I don't know. I, I think it's, I mean, everybody's tastes are so different. It's, do you want to go full fine dining? Do you want some casual stuff? Cause I think the fine dining in this city is pretty trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, I think if you want sushi, you go to Shunji. That's my guy for sushi. I love him. I've been going to him for years. Um, if you want Japanese kaiseki, you only go to Hayato. That is as, that's as good as it gets. You want some of the most creative, delicious food in a beautiful, intimate, fine dining setting, Somni, even though Somni no longer exists. Right. That's where you go. You want the best yakitori, you go to Yakitoria on Sautel. Toshi-san, been open for 24 years, buys live chickens at the market downtown, so you're able to get certain things you can't get anywhere else, like premature eggs. Yep. Um, I think that you do a nice mixture of uh, restaurants with longevity, something new that you want to try out, um, but this is LA. This is, this is a place of that's built on hype and smoke and mirrors. Right. So – you you could have a horrible time, and that's why you got to talk to people that have eaten at places that you trust. Someone you know knows good food or knows your taste in food. Sure. I have plenty of people that wouldn't appreciate yakitoria, um, so I'd say, oh, hey, go here because they have live music and you know truffle fries, which <laughs> are the ba- are the bane of my existence. No thanks, but dude. You you, you got to know your audience. Yep. 
Yep. Uh, unless the fries have truffle shaved all yeah, over them, then... they're not truffle fries. Sure. I'm sorry. Nope, it's true. Uh, um, but yeah, if you had 36 hours, you could really bang out amazing sushi, yakitori. You can even go yakaniku route uh, at Manpuku. Um, and get some good fine dining. And if you really wanted to, uh, you know, I love Providence, uh, for their longevity and what they did for this city, but I do think it's kind of a boring meal and they play it super safe. Um, so that's why I would go Somni and spend a little more money and have your mind blown by just a simple grilled and glazed King crab leg. But you're like, it's way more than that. Right. Right. I think you've, you know, and, and not to spend too much time on it, but you've made your praise of just Josh Skeens and Cezanne and Angler very, very well, well known. D- mm. Do you want to touch on that a little bit and, and why that, that is so special, f- special for you? And I mean, outside of Echibari, and I mean, talk about another mind fuck of a meal. I've only been to Cezanne once and Angler once in this, in San Francisco, but mm-hmm. Just great, just great experiences. What 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 makes those so special for you? Saison, the first time I went, reminded me of Echibari in a way. Yeah. Um, it there, it's a little more polished. Mm-hmm. It's a little. It's San Francisco. Um, that was the only other meal that made me cry. Echibari made me cry the first time I was there, and when I was at Saison for the first time, I I teared up a little bit, um, because how pure the food is it is getting the nicest stuff and treating it in a way that enhances it not muddles it with all your super fun tricks with your twills and your foams and your this and that it's just and this is where i learned and this is i changed a lot of the way i cook because of saison mm-hmm. um if you're doing a dish of peas why not enhance the peas with Parts of them that you don't use, pods, shells that you shuck, incorporate all that. And then you have the most pea-centric, pea-forward dish ever. And I think that that's more impactful than someone putting just a bunch of ingredients in a dish. And also smoke is the X factor. Mm -hmm. The flavor of the grill, um, and everybody's doing wood-fired this and that now. I mean it's for a reason. Um, The flavor that it imparts is that X factor. It's that – it's not like eating bacon where you're like, oh, shit, this is smoky bacon. It's a, it's a nuanced, subtle thing. Um, and I think that adds a lot. It adds. I mean, arguably, like, I don't know. I just think that's for so many people, smoke is this thing that, you know, it, it, they think about it in in kind of like tasting menu terms as like something you can only use on one dish. Because otherwise, it's like repeating ingredients, or I guess repeating techniques in, in this way. Sure. But to have an entire menu be influenced or kind of like tied together through smoke is, I don't know, like completely flip that idea on its head for me. Yeah, and it's levels of smoke too. It's not everything Correct. is smoky. Yep. Some things aren't smoky. Yep. But but the way something is cooked, being above an ember, is going to be different than heat. Uh, in a pan sure, and the fat's going to hit it and it's going to release steam and flavor something with its own fat, essentially vaporized, totally. uh, which I, I think adds a lot to food. Agreed. All right. Rapid fire time. A couple, 
a lot of questions from Instagram came in. Uh, oh, uh, really? Yeah. A friend of mine, um, Ash421 asks, how do you manage sanity living the double life of real estate and food? Uh, because real estate is my profession. I can turn the food off anytime I want. So if one thing needs my attention, um, I can turn the other thing completely off. And the other thing being food, because I need to always pay attention to real estate. I just, I got that sense that you, you, you're not really trying to find a sense of balance. Like there's not, not going to be a point where you're like, okay, I have arrived. You know what I mean? No, it's a creative outlet and it's, it's a release of sorts. So, um, the balance is foods in my life as a release. Yeah. There was another question from a, a friend of mine, another podcast guest on the show. Manny asks similar question about the careers of besides a sacrifice. What's the hardest part about balancing two careers? I don't even know if you consider it two careers. I don't consider it two careers. Um, the hardest thing to balance is probably spending, um, in order to get the equipment and everything you need to pull off, uh, a certain level of meal. Um, it's expensive and just experimenting, figuring out what tastes good and getting certain product and, and mess around the expenses can get really out of control. So if you're not mindful of it, you could, you could rack up some, some wild credit card debt and, uh, and that can hurt. I'm hearing a a hint of advice for someone getting started in that statement. Yeah, (laughs) possibly. Are you a, are you a breakfast guy? Do you, do you do eggs in the morning? I've never been hungry in the morning. So I don't eat breakfast. Well, the, the question I normally ask is, is, how do you make your eggs in the morning? But I guess it, it, your, your favorite way to cook eggs for someone else. If you, you know, a soft scramble that makes the other person who's never had a proper soft scramble, very uncomfortable. There it is. There it is. What is, what is something that you've changed your mind on in recent memory? Um, I've changed my mind on restaurants that don't get great product that, are maybe a chain restaurant like the Hillstone group. Um, you know, you, I, I went into this zone in, in my twenties of, Oh, they're not using perfect technique. They're not sourcing. They're not this and that. Sometimes you just want to go to a restaurant that, you know, you're going to get the same steak every single time and it's going to be the server, you know, and, and the ambiance, you know, and that's okay. Um, it's okay to go to a place that isn't high level and chefs have worked at all these places. These people are just cooks and they're grilling an artichoke and that's okay. I've changed my mind on that. I, I more so visit those places than I do places that are for culinary enjoyment and inspiration because more often than not, those places that I end up going to disappoint me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Name an ingredient you're obsessed with right now, if one comes to mind. Mm, an ingredient that I'm obsessed with. I can't think of one. The, the flip side of it is, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make the rule that you can't use truffle oil, but one that is like overrated or you're just sick of using or you won't put on a menu right now because it's just beyond exhaustive for you for your taste. This is good. This pain. This pains me to say it because I love it so much it's yuzu kosho interesting 
Yeah. There's not a single menu on this planet right now. Obviously, that's an exaggeration, yeah, yeah, but yeah. that doesn't have yuzu koshon. I mean, I love it. It's sure. one of the best condiments ever. Yep. But it's become so mundane, so repetitive it's, that I can't I can't use it. Sure. It's it kind of sucked in and filled the vacuum that kimchi left, I would argue, in a lot of in a lot of places. Totally. Yep. Exactly. It yep. took kimchi's place. Yep. Is there is there a book and it can be an interview or a mentor for you that's been particularly impactful. And this can be real estate or uh, Oxalis style work. Um, for real estate, it's not a book, but a mentor is my father. My father's been doing what I do for, for 50 years. And um, that's who I've always looked to for advice. Because um, you see someone gain such success for such a long time and why read a book or go to someone else when your own father can give you that, um, advice and mentorship. So that's my guy food wise. It's tough. I'm such an asshole when it comes to the food stuff, <laughs> but so there's a really interesting, have you read, um, it's a book called cooking a quintessential art. I've seen it. I've it's like a Irv Irv Thies and, there's yeah. a couple other like co-authors that wrote it with him. And that, that was really, I think you would enjoy it because it, it is, it's a very conversational book. It's not a preaching to you about why food is a craft versus an art, which is another debate we can maybe get onto in another episode. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I just, I, I just, certain concepts of it where were impactful for me early on in, so they, they give this anecdote of like, if you take a carrot and peel that carrot, you are manipulating that ingredient. And so then the question for the chef is at what point does the manipulation stop? And that, that for me as a mental model was like very, very interesting to think about because, you know, as you and I roll our eyes at certain manipulated dishes or Mm -hmm. ingredients, it can, Mm -hmm. you know, early on it's so fancy and foreign that you think that, Oh, I have to do something like that. But you and I are both speaking about like, that's actually, we're trying to get away from that, you know, mm-hmm. so that, was, that was really interesting. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won kind of like an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk to waiting there to have dinner with you. Which restaurant is it? And who is that dining companion? I think, you know, what restaurant? This I, is. Well, so can I, Okay. If it's going to be Echibari or Saison, yeah. you have mm-hmm. to pick, you have to tell me which season of the year you would want to eat. Like what time um, of year? Okay. So it's going to be Echibari. It's going to be spring because you get the Guisantes Lagrima and you get the Angulas, the baby eels. Um, and who's going to be there? Uh, I'd probably want to talk to Escoffier because, I mean, he's kind of the, the godfather of all of this stuff, right? All these techniques that we use today, um, just to talk to the guy that couldn't see the impact that he had so far down the line. I would love to kind of pick that person's brain because he created techniques that we all use and organizational structures for the kitchen that he brought from the military, like all this stuff. Yeah. So it would be cool to talk to the person that created the way we kind of do things now. Sure. And and a, a question I'll end with, and I I, I want to hear if, if there's anything you want to kind of 
tie it, tie the conversation up with, but is there anything that you've seen? Cause there's a lot of line cooks and sous chefs and culinary school students that are listening to this. So mm. what do you think that chefs could be doing better to help the next generation that you've either seen done really well, or you're just frustrated that you're not seeing it enough? I mean, uh, so I don't, I can't speak from experience of working in a kitchen, but I mentor people, uh, in real estate. And I think being patient and nice to people and showing them the right way to do something instead of reprimanding them and saying they're trash and then going and doing it yourself angrily, um, be nice, show someone how to do it and they'll pick up on that and do that for the rest of their lives. Um, it's more impactful to be nice and informative and teach something than be a dick and tell someone they're garbage and push them out of the way. So I think that I see, I see too much of, of the latter of people being dicks and saying you're trash and push them out of the way and doing it themselves. So this person's never going to learn. It's true. Max, anything else you want to leave people with or share, share with the world and put out there? Uh, I'm sick of the trends. I'm sick of chefs uh, with these egos and this food that is self-serving. Um, I wish we could get back to focusing on longevity. Uh, what happened to restaurants that are around for 20, 30 years? What happened to that? Sure. People are, people are like, Hey, we were great for a year. We, you couldn't get a reservation. I'm on to the next thing. Yep. Yep. I don't know what that is. The Zuni cafes of the world, the Chez Panisses, keep it going. Michelle bra. I could go forever. Um, keep those alive. In don't this, forget those. And that's like, I would argue one of the more frustrating parts about everything that's happening in the world is that the good ones are also going to go with the bad ones. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not the wiping the slate, like the bubble, uh, the restaurant bubble popping that everybody thought it would, thought it would be in the sense that all the trendy places who are just chasing clout get Mm. kicked out. And then like the, the pillars, the really strong foundational ones will, will remain. Yeah. That's the most disappointing part of all of this. It is disappointing. And another thing I have to say is new isn't better. Explain that. People are obsessed with what's the new restaurant. What's the new this? What's the new that? Why don't you go back to something that you know is amazing and and not disappoint yourself with the, like Simone opened here with uh, uh, Jessica Largy. Yep. And yep. it was coined as one of the biggest openings in America, blah, blah, blah. This girl's ego and the food that I had was so disappointing and saddening. And she got this whole buildup and everyone was so excited, but she was never capable of cooking her own food. I don't care that you worked at Manresa. Yep. I like Manresa. David Kinch is amazing. Yep. It doesn't mean that you're amazing and that you can cook. We Correct. have that problem. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there different like menus you can order in that space where there was like, there was a counter where you could sit and have like a more, I don't know, start to finish kind of kind of constructive meal but then you could also sit and have a la carte i think that it never actually got to that point or if it so did it was so short-lived but you know this is this is someone if you listen to her on the david chang podcast i mean what an ego and also allergic to fish and all yep. seafood and um 
the food put on a plate was was like an amateur home cook that enjoys going to the farmer's market. Yeah. And that's what pisses me off because someone else that deserved $10 million behind their name didn't get a restaurant because she did. Sure. Well, Max, the world, the world needs more voices like yours. And I'm, <laughs> I'm super happy we could connect and kind of, kind of do this yeah. together. I, I, I can only hope that the, the world gets a little bit safer to, to move around and then I, I, yeah. I can't wait for us to hopefully share a meal together someday. That'd be awesome. I, I appreciate you uh, having me on and letting me talk. Appreciate it, man. Um, yeah, you stay well and um, yeah. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normal where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, excuse me. Pardon me. <laughs>